Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Christology. So some of you may be familiar with the title Christ the Center, which is an earlier release of a bunch of lectures that Bonhoeffer gave in the summer of 1933. Uh, not, we do not have his original uh, typescript or manuscript, but we do have student notes. Dad and I are working from the Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Works in English edition, a more recent retranslation of all of Bonhoeffer's works. If you are a Bonhoeffer fan, you will definitely want to invest in these massive tomes. Um, but so for this uh, new translation, they decided to do things a little bit differently in the old Christ the Center. It was an amalgamation of the notes of several different students. Uh, this one in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's works in English is based on student notes from a particular student, Gerhard Riemer. And then they have uh, footnotes comparing if there's slight divergences with what the other students or, or emendations or additions or something like that. These were lectures that Bonhoeffer gave as a professor in Berlin in the summer of 1933. And um, those of you who do not have your uh, Nazi radar at high alert, like we, of course, always do, may not realize that in February of 1933 is when the Nazi takeover of power in, German, in Germany took place. So Bonhoeffer is giving these lectures just a few months after the new normal is established in his country. And as usual, we will see uh, prescience in his analysis uh, of what is going on, even if apparently um, muted and somewhat indirect in the form of lectures on Christology. Dad, why did you, when I propose that we did a, do another Bonhoeffer episode this year, because um, people like Bonhoeffer and so do we, uh, why did you want to focus on this uh, collection of lectures in particular? I think that it comes so early in Bonhoeffer's career um, and a lot of attention, especially in the United States, has been focused on the striking Christological formulations of the late letters and papers from prison, you know, where Bonhoeffer talks about Christ as the man for others and has very and talks about religionless Christianity and things like that. Uh, but here we see in these lectures, we see Bonhoeffer dealing densely and richly with the with the Christological tradition, both of the patristic church uh, and then of uh, Lutheran orthodoxy uh, as he comes to his own contemporary position in various ways. A very interesting appreciation and critique of the doctrine of the Council of Chalcedon with its two natures in one person formulation which Bonhoeffer thinks is systematically misleading for using the concept of nature uh, in a comprehensive way to bracket both the reality of God and the reality of the human. Um, and we'll get into some of the reasons why that critique is made. Um, but I think before we really launch into that part, Sarah, we should pay close attention to the context in 1933. Hitler has come to power in February. By April, he's passed legislation making him the virtual dictator of Germany. Uh, the first of the um, Aryan laws are passed. The uh, hot debate starts in the churches. 
whether Germans of non-Aryan descent can be pastors in a church that seemingly wants to align itself to coordinate itself with the National Socialist Revolution. This is the wider context in which Bonhoeffer decides to lecture on Christology um, in the summer semester there in Berlin. Now, Bonhoeffer uh, had a brief appearance here as an academic theologian in Berlin, but he went on from there and never again took up a university position in Germany. Uh, his teaching career was limited to the um, to his writings and to the uh, secret seminaries of the Confessing Church. Um, so this is his, you know, kind of what a what a what a young docent would would attempt to do to establish his academic credentials. These lectures were. <laughs> Yes, and he certainly does. So in, in uh, the volume, uh, volume 12 of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's works in English, it is only 60 pages, but they are demanding 60 pages. This is not a light read. This uh, Every sentence counts for a lot. And this is, um, it's very good and very lucid, but very, very densely packed academic prose. Um, let, let me just uh, ask Dad for, for one th- a thought from you before we carry on regarding the context. Uh, you know this better than I do, but it's my understanding, you know, when uh, especially uh, Americans now look back at Hitler's rise to power, we... we we tend to focus on like the the policies or the ideas uh, or the ideologies involved. But it's my understanding that Hitler rose to power as much on his own person, that there was something about him as the leader, der Führer, who was going to bring Germany out of the ashes and rise to greatness again. Like a lot of his success was, was his own charismatic persona that swept people up. And they felt that going with Hitler was, was part of the renewal of their nation and uh, and uh, cosmic in in his um, in his scope and significance for Germany. And so, first of all, is that the case? And if so, then it seems to me that deciding to lecture on Christ the center and uh, the way we'll see Bonhoeffer packs all of everything in all of existence and eternity into the person of Christ seems to me to be a very explicit contrast to the, the persona that Hitler was presenting and attracting people with. Oh, no question about it. The uh, messianic pretensions, first of Italian fascism and now of Hitler's national socialism, are, are palpable, even if they're formulated finally in very anti-Christian ways. And Bonhoeffer puts his finger on this issue um, right, right in the middle of his lectures on Christology. This is a somewhat extended quote, but I think it's worth paying attention to. I'm quoting. Bonhoeffer writes, History lives towards the fulfillment of God's promise. This means history is essentially messianic history. The meaning of history is nothing other than the coming of the Messiah. But... It is subject to this promise as an individual is subject to the law. That is, it cannot fulfill the promise by itself. History wants to glorify itself in the Messiah. History is struggling towards the impossible fulfillment of a degenerate promise. History knows about its messianic destiny, but is defeated by it. 
Israel stands alone among nations with its prophetic hope. This Israel becomes the place where God fulfills this promise. That Christ is the Messiah cannot be proven. He can only be proclaimed. This statement means that in Christ, the messianic expectation of history is crushed as well as fulfilled. It is crushed because the fulfillment is hidden. It is fulfilled because the Messiah has truly come. The meaning of history is swallowed up in an event that takes place in the deep desolation of human life on the cross. History finds its meaning in the humiliation of Christ. End quote. Let me observe quickly that uh Christ is the center of everything, according to Bonhoeffer, but the center of these lectures, like the almost literal literary center of them, is Israel and Israel's messianic expectation, and then Christ, the Messiah given first to Israel and then to nations. Also a very pointed contrast to the messianic so-called hopes of someone like Hitler. And the stress that Bonhoeffer consistently places on the humility and humiliation of Christ. Um as the center of the center, as he will go on later on to explain. And I, I can contrast this with a, a kind of a pointed statement made by Adolf Hitler in his table talks from behind the Russian front uh, in 42-43, where he recounts how he uh, became apostate from his Catholic uh, upbringing. He had been an altar boy. And he says how he turned away from the, the magic of the, of the sacrament of the Mass, the transubstantiation of the bread and the wine. And also, as he put it so graphically, how he turned away from the ugly face of a grimacing man, namely thinking of a crucifix. And that is a quite deliberate turning away from the Bonhoeffer's humiliation of Christ. And so this, what Bonhoeffer presents us with is this very dialectical view that history is determined by its messianic hope, but its messianic fulfillment comes only in the way of the cross. Yeah, it just <laughs> makes me think that this, uh, the Adolf who refused to look at one suffering man's face uh, in, in dying agonies was able to send countless millions to agonizing deaths. There is probably a connection there. No, you're probably right. Here's one other issue that Bonhoeffer raises here in this section, betraying his, the way he's speaking um, through his lectures to the rise of Nazism. He writes, the church uh, is the center of the history that is made by the state. The church must be understood to be the center, the hidden center of the state. The church, as the Christ who is present, gives proof of its being in the center, not by being visibly at the center of the state, not by being a state church. The church judges and justifies the state, assuming that it is the nature of the state through actions that create law and order to bring the goals of its people nearer to fulfillment. Thus, in every state, behind the idea of creating order, the messianic idea lies hidden. End quote. 
Yeah, you definitely hear the uh, uh, an appropriation and uh, uh, contextually appropriate correction to the classic Lutheran distinction between the two hands of God, the left hand and the right hand, both doing godly things, but in very different ways. And but he he's I, I think creating a a deliberate contrast in order to knock the state down off of its high horse a bit. Hmm. Yes. But also to knock the church off of its high horse. <laughs> when the church thinks that it can have a cozy relationship to the state as its patron, it's no longer being the church of the humiliated Christ. And it's no longer being at the center of the state as, um, as it ought to be. It's, it's rather the case that the judgment and justification of the state by the church um, consists in um, the church's uh, holding the state up to its divine institution. Uh, and this is really the secret of Bonhoeffer's interpretation of the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms, namely that the... the um, key to Romans 13 is the statement about being subject to the governing authorities as a matter of conscience, a conscience formed by the crucified and humiliated Christ, a conscience accountable to God for the churches keeping the state on task, from which follows then the implication if the state violates its divine institution to um, create law and order, and justice, and 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 social welfare, if the if the state fails to do that, for the same reasons that one is conscientiously bound to obey a just state, Bonhoeffer then reasoned some years later, one is conscientiously bound to disobey. An unlawful, uh, an un, uh, a demonized state. Okay, well, I think that gives us a pretty good feeling for what is at stake in what Bonhoeffer is going to go on to say about Christ in these lectures. Okay, so how does he launch the project? So, well, it, it's interesting. He he starts with a um, kind of generalized discussion of human logos, um, which uh, is spelled in the English edition with a little L, and then the counter logos with a capital L, which clearly means the divine logos, the logos of John 1, that is, in fact, Christ. Um, and and uh, he makes this uh, somewhat outrageous. Uh, well, I mean, all statements about Christ are outrageous to some degree. He says, Christology is the invisible, unrecognized, hidden center of scholarship. So not just state and not just church, but also of scholarship, the very ability to think and reason and make sense of the world. But then he goes on, and I, I was struck by, this is almost 100 years ago, uh, yeah, 90 years ago, and he says, well, what happens if it's claimed that the human logos is dead, condemned, and superseded? So apparently that was already happening then. It is only the more so right now. And um, he... Uh, he says that, uh, nevertheless, the human logos continues to assert itself until the counter logos comes along and says, I am the death of the human logos. So somehow those who were denying human reason were right, but not right for the right reasons. They were right for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, so he, he's already setting up scholarship itself and this theological reflection on scholarship as a kind of crash of the overweening beliefs of autonomy or complete despair and abandonment of truth that characterizes, you know, in shorthand, modernity and post-modernity, respectively. Um, we won't spend a lot of time with this, but later on, he has this rather uh, delicious skewering of um, the doctrine of verbal inspiration, um, which he says, which I, I, I'm positing here is saying that the human logos and the, the, the divine logos are in an easy, cozy relationship among us believers. <laughs> uh, and Bonhoeffer says, verbal inspiration means to deny the Christ who alone is present as the risen one. Inspiration from the literal words is a poor surrogate for the resurrection. It eternalizes the historical instead of recognizing the historical as coming from God's eternity and God's resurrection. I, I, I thought that was brilliantly insightful, that verbal inspiration is a surrogate and a poor one at that for the resurrection. So anyway, these whole lectures start out with addressing it in, in a very deep respect, the crisis of reason. Yes, that's right. And that, of course, when you have a political regime coming to power, uh, in the most enlightened and advanced secular um, uh, culture of, of 19th century, turning into 20th century Germany, where you have this these forces of unreason uh, just um, uh, um, asserting themselves. There's, there's a famous little anecdote about national socialists uh, who were asked by a still democratic politician whether they wanted, didn't they want lower gas prices? And the Nazi socialist crowd chanted, we don't want higher prices, we don't want lower prices, we want national socialist prices. <laughs> wow. And wow. that's just the... That's just the the irrationality that that has now overtaken Germany in this episode of the rise of Nazism. Yeah, and it's so clearly messianic. It's just messianic attached to the wrong Messiah. So anyway, uh, so Bonhoeffer here is speaking to a context where human logos is is all but dead because of the ideological insanity that is unfolding around them. But he is speaking to theology students by and large, and um, so he is and he is speaking therefore even though in, in an academic environment he is speaking to the church and he's speaking to believers or those who desire to be believers. And so the the uh, substantial criticisms of the set of lectures are really towards faulty Christologies by those who would be Christians. And the way he starts off um, kind of his launching point for thinking this through is to talk about the difference between talking about Christ as a how uh, or Christology as a as primarily occupied with the how. How is it possible for the two natures, divine and human, to be in one single person? Um, he says that's all all wrong and misguided. He wants us to focus on the who. So here's a, a, a quote that sets it up. He says, can we even really ask the question who? Can we, when we ask who, really mean anything other than how? No, we cannot. The mystery of who remains hidden from us. The ultimate question for critical thinking is that it must ask who, but it cannot. The question of who can only be asked on the condition that the answer has already been given. 
Right. Now, this is, there's actually, Sarah, a very profound uh, analysis behind these simple words. How is the question of the human logos uh, uh, attempt to classify and categorize things? Um, the how question is, says, let me, let me master the phenomena by putting it in a category or a class. Then I will know how it is possible, how it's, how it's, how it's being is possibly this. So if I look at a couple of mammals and I say, well, that one is a cat, but that one is a dog, I've committed an act of classification. And that act of classification is uh, motivated by the attempt uh, to master its way of being. So in my case, I would know, no, I'll never let that way of being, which is cat, into my house because its dandruff <laughs> would make me sneeze. But uh, I might let that animal who is a dog into the house because I'm not allergic to dogs. So the question of what kind of being is this is really, um, really motivated by the question of how can I control, manipulate, and master this phenomenon in my own interest for my own purposes? Now, how different that how question is from a who question? When I say to a human being, who are you, right? I'm not necessarily trying to master them. I'm actually offering them the opportunity to reveal themselves, to open themselves up to me. I'm, in fact, inviting them to enter into what we call a personal relationship. So Bonhoeffer is making a categorical distinction here between who and how. And he's saying that if we try to ask of Christ the question how, we're wrong from the start because we're subtly trying to master Christ. We're trying to get in control of Christ. Um, and that is something that cannot be done. We might recognize that in the case of Christ, uh, who is this that even wind and wave obey him? Who is this to forgive sins on the earth? We can ask with the Gospels this who question. But also according to the Gospels, Bonhoeffer is pointing out, we're not able to answer it. We can't come to the proper interpretation of who Christ is on our own. Mm. You know, this this uh, aspect of Bonhoeffer really reminded me a lot of Barthes and uh, Barthes' just strong proclamation of Christ and kind of a, a refusal to even uh, play fair with the rules of human reason, which of course is, is a preposterous accusation to make against Bart because he was immensely learned and did all the work and laid it out in multiple volumes of the church dogmatics. But I think what's important to see it in, in both of them, and of course we'll trace it out in Bonhoeffer closely here, is that our inability to master Christ a, does not absolve us from the responsibility of being um, responsible for what we say about Christ, uh, about who he is as well. So it's not a kind of a, a affirmation of know-nothingism or anti-intellectualism, but also it means that we don't get to deploy Christ or faith in Christ as a weapon against other people. And I think that's what makes... Um, 
people now especially nervous about the the strength with which a Bart or a Bonhoeffer proclaims the ab- absoluteness and truthness and whoness of Christ is that it seems like it can be used as a weapon. But I think if we follow both of them, the, these theologians carefully, that itself already betrays instrumentalizing Christ, uh, using him as a how to advance my religious cause or whatever cause, rather than um, being the, the receptor, the recipient of of the who that is Christ in his self-giving, which also includes a judgment on human logos, even Christian human logos. Right. And that's, that's why you're right to point out the dependence on Karl Barth. We can mention here, Michael de Jung's uh, wonderful two books on Von Heffer. The first one is about his Berlin education and a deep analysis of his encounter with Barth. And the second one is Bonhoeffer's reception of Luther, which is also outstanding, in fact, cutting-edge kind of analysis of uh, Bonhoeffer's uh, participation or harvest from the Luther Renaissance that was going on in Berlin in the 1920s. Hmm. Yeah, I've I read think, that. Think, that is really good. I, I think you're, it's well to point that out. But I think here we can also mention um, that it's really a question of precedence. Does the how question govern the, govern the who question? If it does, then you look at something like the miracles of Jesus and you pronounce, you assert dogmatically, the evidence demands a verdict. Who do you think Jesus is? And of course, you know, the Gospels themselves show that that doesn't work, that the miracles of Jesus Repeatedly. are always yeah, are always doubtable. And even the miracles don't educate the disciples to a proper faith in Christ. It's a question of precedence. When when we give primacy to the question, who is Jesus, so that the answer, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, is given to us. Now, the, how is it given is something Bonhoeffer will then talk about shortly. But when the, with the givenness of the answer, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that governs the question that theology must also attend to of um, how this can be. Now, n- not comprehensively or categorically or primarily as Bonhoeffer's crit- critiqued, but as we'll see as we go a little bit further, Bonhoeffer himself cannot avoid raising somehow questions, even though he <laughs> denies that he's doing it. <laughs> true enough, true enough. Well, again, so the starting point then, as he launches in from the prefatory remarks to uh, delving into the person and work of Christ. So for what Bonhoeffer wants to say is the person question precedes also the works question. And and that's a kind of mirror of the who Christ is versus what he does or, or how, how we might recognize him through through what he does. So uh, there's definitely some, he's interacting here with what he's inherited from other Lutheran theologians as well. So dad, tell, talk us through why the person is, is uh, prior to the works. Yeah, a statement of the early Melanchthon, um, to know Christ is to know his benefits. Uh, Bonhoeffer lifts that up and calls it an epoch-making view, and then comments, it was fully developed by Schleiermacher and Ritchell. The Schleiermacher, the great father of liberal Protestant theology, 
and Albrecht Ritschel uh, several generations later, still in the 19th century, the great Lutheran uh, systematic theologian of the 19th century. And um, Bonhoeffer, is, is, as you were pointing out, Sarah, is, is quite critical of this approach because it is, um, it is saying we can infer the value or the dignity of the person of Christ from his historical effects upon us. Um, and he, Bonhoeffer counters this view by, first of all, quoting Luther. Luther says that everything depends on whether someone is a good person. If the person is good, then the works will be good, even if it appears to be otherwise. And then he explains his meaning. The attempt to grasp the person through the works cannot succeed because the character of works remains ambiguous. Now, I think this is an extreme, end quote, extremely important point. It's not obvious what our works tell us about our person. Um, in Luther's sense, you know, the, the Boy Scout might be uh, eager to escort the senior citizen across the busy uh, uh, highway uh, to ensure the senior citizen's safety. That seems to be a good work. But what does it tell us about the character of the Boy Scout? Is the Boy Scout motivated simply by earning some points towards his merit badge, towards his promotion to being an Eagle Scout? Or is the Boy Scout actually motivated by compassion for a senior citizen who's in danger of harm uh, and wants to just put himself there in the gap to prevent harm from happening to the senior citizen. Um, so Bonhoeffer says, from these works there is no access to the human person, only the person's decision to reveal himself. I cannot get to another person unless that person reveals himself to me. Hmm. I think this is an absolutely necessary ethical observation to make about human beings. And I think one that is is poorly understood. I think people's deepest desire is to be perceived as good. There is no necessary relationship between being perceived as good and being actually good. And a lot of people have done a lot of horrifying things trying to look good <laughs> and not seeing... Not, not only failing to see that there is no necessary connection between looking good and being good, but also on a, a, a maybe a, a deeper level, the desire to look good is so profound that there is an abject unwillingness to do the truly good thing if it makes us look bad. And that, I think, more than anything else, it's very hard to swallow. And if there there's anything to be said for deep and extensive training in virtue and prayer and self-reflection, it is getting to the point of being able to take on the truly good thing at risk of looking bad. And in an oversimplified sense, the story of Jesus Christ is a story of the person who looked ultimately bad while being ultimately good. And that right there is the disjunction that Bonhoeffer is talking about. Uh, uh, excellent, Sarah. That's an outstanding uh, 
piece of analysis there. I really thank you for that. That's just great. And, you know, you're, uh, to anticipate your final thought there, Bonhoeffer now drives a nail uh, into the coffin of self-justification in the form of I want to look good. I want to be found on the so-called right side of history. He says, how is the person of Christ to be recognized other than through his works? Then he says, I answers, this objection contains the deepest error of all. Even the works of Christ are not unambiguous, close quote. I think that's, you know, particularly as we've wrestled with the uh, tradition of Christian anti-Judaism, how important it is for Christians to understand why believing Jews find the works of Jesus Christ ambiguous. Why believing Jews find the works of Jesus Christ ambiguous. Or bad, or just just bad. <laughs> and, or just and bad, others. yeah. Yeah, and others, I, I think uh, at least the Christian account is troubling to, to pious Muslims, and there are plenty of secular people who find Jesus not terribly inspiring or convincing. I think, yeah, I think Bonhoeffer's right. We have to grant them that. Right. And so the works of, of Jesus, whether they're the from the gospel narrative or for some, from some historical critics' reconstruction of the really real, real historical Jesus, you know, these works... I mean, remember we talked about Marcus Borg and his honest admission, I want Jesus to look good, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. I I want Jesus to look good. So therefore, he could not have thought his passion (laughs) was was willed by God as an atonement for the sins of the world. Oh, that would be an awful way to think that Jesus thought about himself. Yeah, and I think a lot of apologetics is trying to make Jesus look good rather than asking who is he? And is he a good person? Well, Bonhoeffer then finishes off this discussion by showing that the crystal, I'm quoting the Christological question, it has theological priority over the soteriological question. I must first know who it is who does something before I can know what it is that the person has done. Nevertheless, he then adds, it would be wrong to conclude that the person and work should be considered separately. Separately. Now, with that last sentence, is he throwing away what he's just established? That's an, <laughs> that's an interesting question, and we'll, which we'll continue with. But let's just understand that what he said is that we cannot establish the saving significance of Jesus Christ based on what he makes me feel like or based on what I think he does to me, or based on what kind of effects Jesus has on me. All of these kinds of answers are inadequate. Uh, First, we must know who it is who is doing whatever he does before we can know how that work of Christ is actually a good work of salvation. Yeah, and I think it's also important to say Bonhoeffer isn't describing here like the the process of getting to know the contents of the Bible or growing up in the church or coming to faith. He, he's not talking in terms of our uh, a, a, 
a specific autobiographical epistemological process here because um, plenty of people can first hear that Christ is Savior who did these things and then in time come to understand who he is. So that's that's he's he's talking theologically here, not experientially, which I think is helpful. And I also think, you know, there there is a question about uh, whether he can dismiss the works problem quite so easily. But I think we can look at it like this. Anybody can excuse their bad or shady or lazy or corrupt behavior by saying, yeah, but in my heart, I know what's right and wrong. And in my heart, I'm really a good person. I mean, you hear people <laughs> make this defense all the time. So I think it's, it is a fair and right and actually truly good to say of Christ, okay, if there seems to be some ambiguity about his works, are we pulling a, well, he was really a good man. He was just misunderstood or he couldn't help it under the circumstances, you know, those kind of excuses that, um, you know, uh, sweep away genuinely bad works by claiming to be a good person. That is a common defense. That is not that is not what Bonhoeffer is after by um, structuring the relationship between person and works in Christ. Absolutely not. I think another way of making his point, uh, I would put it this way. It's not what you or I, th- in the first place, it's not what you or I think of Jesus. Uh, it's not even what Jesus thinks of Jesus. It's <laughs> what God thinks of Jesus. And that's why for Bonhoeffer, the who question is finally a matter of transcendence, he says, rather than imminence. I think this is a point worth dwelling on for just a moment before we go on in this age of identity politics, when young people especially are utterly preoccupied with, am I gay, straight, binary? Am I um, um, multifaceted sexuality? Am I brown? Am I black? Am I this? Am I that? I mean, the identity question, who am I? just is raging, especially among young people. And, of course, Bonhoeffer's point is, you have to ask this question, but you can't answer it. And any time you try to answer it, it's going to lead you into disaster or failure. Why? Because who you are is finally a matter of who God thinks you are, who God calls you to be. And it's a question of transcendence. So you can ask the question, who am I, and try to answer it with these various worldly categories, but it's going to fail you, disappoint you, or mislead you. The question who inevitably is a theological question. It's a question about your relationship with your creator and redeemer. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend yesterday who simply characterized all the social and political upheaval in the U.S. is at at root a religious crisis. And I I think just that little analysis you made there uh, shores up that point. Okay, so back to Bonhoeffer. He, He said it would be wrong to conclude that the person and the work should be considered separately. So the next section of the lectures is the present Christ pro me, Latin for me. Uh, which sometimes we turn into a theological noun, noun the promeity of Christ, the, his being for us. Um, and now Bonhoeffer wants to say, and I would argue, in a sense, almost collapse together the being and the, the person and the work of Christ. For Bonhoeffer, Christ is essentially the one who is for others, the one who is for me. Um, So that sounds really good, and we'll have to ask the question, though, what's wrong with it, or what might be a problem with it, maybe better put. 
All right. Well, let me just um, quickly cover a few aspects of, or most of the aspects of what he gets at in this section on on the present Christ pro May, and then you can pick out what in particular you want to focus on. So for for Bonhoeffer, um, in some sense, the most important thing is that he is present and that he is present for me, which also always means for us. And for him, there we are not uh, vicars of an absent Christ. We are recipients of a present Christ. Um, and so we'll get into how exactly that presence is, is possible in, in a little bit. Uh, he, he has, I think, this uh, nice way of characterizing the issue here. It is impossible to ask how the human Jesus can be simultaneously with each of us, as if this Jesus could exist in isolation. It is just as impossible to ask how God can enter into time as if such an isolated God could exist. The only question that makes sense is who is present? Who is with us here and now? The answer is the human dash God, Jesus. And then he goes through and talks about, um, I don't think modes of presence might be too technical a, a term, but the ways in which Christ is present to us. He has some very beautiful words, I thought, about preaching, that Christ is truly present in the scandalous form of preaching. Uh, but he also immediately wants to say that when we talk about the preaching of Christ, we're not only talking about the presence of Christ or the humanity of God, um, you know, as as God, Jesus being fully God and fully human, but specifically that he is present as the humiliated one. And there is uh, an inherently and intended stumbling block aspect to Christ being present through preaching. He also says the same thing of Christ present as a sacrifice in the sacraments, that Christ is truly present in the sacraments, almost as the ultimate humiliation of the incarnate God-man is to take the form of um, baptism and the Holy Supper. He also talks about promeity in the sense of Christ being the head and firstborn of a large family, that he is in fact the church, the church as community, not acting for it as if he were somehow separate from it, but Christ acts as the church community. And because he is himself the new humanity in him, God both judges and pardons humanity. Uh, he talks also very strongly about Christ being the word of address between God and us. So not something that can be conceived or analyzed separately from God or from us, but is actually in a sense the, the medium of communication between the two of us. And, um, and then last of all, I think we can, well, why don't you comment if you have any comments there, and then let's talk about the specific uh, historical dogmatic discussion of modes of presence. Yeah, um, that's very good. I mean, in some ways, you can read what Bonhoeffer is saying here as kind of a, an updating and radicalization of Luther's Christology, which is founded on the idea that the risen and ascended Christ is, is not an idea. It's not a memory of someone who lived in the past. It's a present reality in the word and sacraments around which the church gathers, as which the church gathers, as Christ existing as community. And this is so important for Bonhoeffer. We can talk about Jesus Christ only because in the word and sacraments of Christ, we experience the reality of the crucified and risen one who is there for us, who is there for us as an expression of his authentic self, of his being for others, his promeity, right? Um, 
So it's both the fact of the of Christ's presence and his fact, the fact of this presence as the one who is radically for others that Bonhoeffer is trying to synthesize and and lift up as the solution to a contemporary Christology over against the um, context in which he's living, in which the German people are greeting Adolf Hitler as the Messiah sent from God to save them from their humiliation. And here Bonhoeffer is saying to the contrary, the genuine salvation of God is present in this humble and humiliating form. Jesus Christ, the risen one, the glorious one, is there where? In the community, in the sermon, and in the sacrament. Yeah, very good. So how does that work? See what I did there? Yeah, and yeah, how does that work? <laughs> Here he goes into a detailed discussion of Luther's uh, doctrine of about the presence of Christ in his treatise, uh, the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper from 1528, I believe. And there he... Um, Luther distinguishes local presence, definitive presence, and repletive presence. And um, we don't need to go into Luther here, but rather to... Now, this is... I just said Bonhoeffer's Christology is in some ways a updating and a radicalization of Luther's Christology. Uh, it also contains a pretty sharp critique of Luther's Christology in the 1528 treatise Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, because he accuses Luther of surrendering to the how question. And then he says Luther has two different answers to how Christ can be present. One answer is the doctrine of ubiquity in the sense of substance. Now, what does that mean? It means that the substance of the eternal divine Son of God, the eternal Logos, Logos is omnipresent. And so because of the unification of the human Jesus with the divine Son of God, the body of Christ is also participates in the omnipresence or ubiquity of the eternal Son. That's one way to answer the how question. The other answer is Christ is there when he, and where he wants to be there for you. Um, that's a much more personal and voluntaristic uh, interpretation of answer to the question how Christ can be present. And this is, he, he quotes the Latin uh, word that was created by Martin Chemnitz, ubi voli presence, uh, ubi wherever voli he wants presence to be present, ubi voli presence. Now, Bonhoeffer points out, both of these are answers to a how question, and as such, posit Christ outside of his being there for you. Notice that, posits Christ outside of his being there for you. For Bonhoeffer, Christ being there for you is who he is. Tut court, I mean, you know, that as such, full stop, Christ is his very being there for you. 
So in a sense, ubiquity is the same as ubi voli presence because Christ always desires to be there for you everywhere. So even if the distinction can be made conceptually, Bonhoeffer saying it's fundamentally wrong because it allows you to conceptualize Christ apart from his desire to be there for you. Yes, but see, I say it's even more radical than that because it's not a question of Christ willing to be present for you. He simply is mm. being there for right. you. Okay. Right, right. I mean, okay. that, it's a matter of his, his nature, his essence. So the problem his, then is separating his Christ's being from Christ's will as if he could um, uh, invoke his will to want to be there for you rather than simply by his very constituted nature being there for you. Right. And of course, the issue here is whether that robs Christ of, uh, of his personal freedom, whether that reduces Christ to being a manifestation of a particular nature. And, and that's a Bonhoeffer actually points that out. He says, ubi voli presence, it makes it Christ's reality a matter of promise, not a matter of person, of who he is. That's why, and this is a direct quote, neither the doctrine of ubiquity nor the doctrine of ubi voli presence can express the presence of the God human person as the exalted and humiliated Christ. They are theologically inadequate to do so. Both doctrines are necessary consequences of the how question in Lutheran territory. That is, he says polemically, of the Reformed tradition within Lutheran theology. End quote. <laughs> Lutherans always blame Reformed for asking the wrong questions and messing us up. But <laughs> they're, they're, it, this isn't uh, purely... Um, uh, out of nowhere or out of left field, it's because Luther's confession concerning Christ's Supper, where he talks about these different modes of presence, is a response to Zwingli. So that's where Luther develops these ideas of of different kinds of presence, and um, and it is the basis for uh, you know, and the the way this comes through in uh, popular or pastoral application of doctrine is when your um, you know your uh, golfer says you know I can uh, encounter Christ just as well on the golf course as I can in church. And the point is that, yes, Christ is everywhere. Good point. However, in the Lord's Supper, he is there for you in promise for the forgiveness of sins in the way he is not promised to be present for you on the golf course. Right. And that would make his presence in the Lord's Supper uh, the presence as he wants to be and wills to be, subject to his own personal freedom, rather than some kind of ontological fact. Um, but here, I think Bonhoeffer succumbs, for all of his good intentions, to uh, making the ont some kind of ontological um, uh, question determinative for his Christology. And I can support that now with a direct quote. Bonhoeffer writes, By virtue of what personal ontological structure is Christ present to the Church? If one answers, by virtue of his God-humanity, that is correct, but still needs explication. It is the pro-me-for-me structure. The being of Christ's person is essentially relatedness to me. His being Christ is his being for me. The pro-me is not to be understood as an effect that issues from Christ or as a form that he assumes incidentally, 
but it is to be understood as the being of his very person. And this in turn means that I can think of Christ only in existential relationship to him and at the same time only within the church community. Christ is not in himself and also in the church community, but the Christ who is the only Christ is the one present in the church community pro me. Now, end quote. Uh, what are the issues with this argument? Can I take a stab at it? Go ahead. Well, so I think I can see what he's trying to do. I, what he's trying to do is say you cannot treat Christ as an object of scrutiny, like an amoeba under the microscope, so that you could just look at him as such in himself, in his Godhead, in his humanity, even in his unity as a person, as something that you can, in any sense, distance yourself from the way you must in, you know, good scientific or philosophical analysis. So I think what he's trying to do is say that it's more like the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty, like the observer alters the situation because you, the observer of Christ, are also, by definition, human, like Christ is human, and you are uh, saved or potentially saved by Christ as your Savior. How could you possibly look at him and not have the relationship be part and parcel of what's going on? So I think that's what he's trying to get at. But it sounds like, from what you've been saying here, that what you've what you've laid your finger on is that in trying to make this strong assertion and probably an important corrective to the intellectual discipline of theology, what he's also done is is made Christ, uh, somewhat ironically, into an expression of an, a principle of promeity, and like you said, thereby robs Christ of his personal freedom. Um, Though that again might, it seems like we're as much as anything talking about the problem of the, the, the sinful, faithful human observer as much as we were talking about Christ. Yeah, very good, Sarah. That's a good summary of what I was trying to say. And, I, you know, I just want to mention quickly to the readers, many years ago, uh, I participated in the Luther Congress in a colloquium on Luther's Christology under the leadership of Oswald Bayer and the very fine German scholar theologian Jörg Bauer was part of that um, part of that seminar and um, he had given me um, uh, a work of his to read auf deutsch um, uh, very sophisticated german i had to work hard at it um, <laughs> and then but my disagreement with bauer is expressed in the footnotes of my contribution to that book that was later uh, published. Um, we'll put that in the show notes. But this was the heart of the conflict between us, was that I think Bauer was invoking the tradition of Johannes Brentz and um, Bonhoeffer in order to argue this ontological structure of promeity as the understanding of how Christ is who he is. <laughs> <laughs> and and I objected to that, that that turns Christ into, as you put it, the manifestation of an idea or the manifestation of a principle rather than the revelation of a personal agent who can will himself to be present in the particular way that he promises, which was, I think, Luther's point in the argument about the Lord's Supper. 
and in the later Lutheran Orthodox doctrine of Ubi Voli Prisons. Now, I think Bonhoeffer uh, can be defended somewhat against the, this sharp critique I'm making, because he doesn't understand the Logos as an idea. But for Bonhoeffer, the divine Logos is the word as address. It's a speech from one person to another. It's not some idea in itself. And so, as speech, it creates community by bringing another into its truth. Here's a direct quote from Bonhoeffer. Christ is not a new concept of God or a new moral teaching. Christ is instead God's word, speech, personally addressed to the human being, calling him to responsibility. I am there for you, therefore you be there for God and his kingdom. And I think that would be a way of, another way of positively interpreting Bonhoeffer's intention. But that would mean to me, Sarah, the problem here is that so many Western theologians begin with Chalcedon. And the problem of how divine nature and human nature can be unified in one person. And that, that of course, sets them off on all these difficulties. Bonhoeffer is like a typical Western theologian trying to deal with the problem of starting with Chalcedon as if it were not the fourth ecumenical council, as <laughs> if there were not three previous ecumenical councils. And the problem to me here is that there's not an adequate understanding of the Trinitarian persons. And because there's not an adequate understanding of the Trinitarian persons, there's not an understanding of how the, the divine Son of God can be transcendent of the human individual of our history, Jesus of Nazareth, without at all being separated from him or being um, um, uh, somehow um, uh, not fully identified with him. Mm. Yes, I, I have to say it is notable when you read through these dense 60 pages that there is a lot about God, but very little modification of God as father. And I'm not sure there was any mention of the Holy Spirit at, at all. So that's why the, the context makes some difference to me. If Bonhoeffer is on some level positing a different Führer than the one who is currently reigning over Berlin, the same city where Bonhoeffer is teaching, then I can understand the hyper focus on Christ and Christ the center and Christ, the, the true the true expression of God and Christ who is for us in community and, and in humiliation and in the scandal of preaching and sacraments. But in terms of a, a fully developed doctrine of God, uh, yes, there, there are two notably absent players in this account. Yeah, and of course, this, this critique is not meant to be any kind of criticism of Bonhoeffer. My heaven, the man, the man is, what, 30 years old when he's delivering these lectures? No, and, and they're I mean, and they're phenomenal. There's so much wisdom in them. Yes, <laughs> right, right. Yes, and he and he was not able to live to f complete his theological project that he is simply beginning to sketch out here. Um, so, I would like to point out as well, just in passing, I mentioned Jörg Bauer. As I was reading rereading this for today's podcast, it struck me how deeply dependent 
Robert Jensen is in his um, Christology on these lectures of Bonhoeffer in many respects. The, fundamentally, the idea that Jesus is human and this human Jesus simply is the second person of the triune identity, simply is God. Who is this God? He is the God who became human as we become human. He is completely human. Nothing human is foreign to him. The human being that I am is what Jesus Christ was also. We say of this human being, Jesus Christ, that he is God. Now, that's all Bonhoeffer, right? And Jensen is very much like that. But it begs a, a fundamental question in the very rhetoric. Who is this God? He is the God who became human as we become human. Kai Hologos Sarks Agenito, and the word became flesh. What kind of divine becoming of this is if, it, if it's a simple identity? If you're simply saying Jesus, the human being Jesus, is the eternal Son of God. That's a statement that in the abstract we can, of course, agree with. But you have some kind of attention to the how question that here, here, that is not a simple assertion of identity. Uh, it's not a simple statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Shut up and deal with it. <laughs> it's, it is an assertion that God in his majesty and freedom, but above all in his compassion, in the fullness of time sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, etc., there's a becoming here, a divine becoming. He is the God who became human. right? And I think this kind of Christology, which wants to cut to the chase and say, here is the fact, here is the assertion, here is the charismatic pronouncement of the assertion, ironically undercuts the great majesty and wonder of the freedom of God who had no need to love the apostate creation, but nevertheless found the way to seek and find us in Christ. Well, I think what this points up again is that the the order of inquiry has a substantial effect on what you find. So if if you start with the the who that uh, Christ and let's say also his father and their spirits um, are, are are truly God and and the God who saves, then I think from that, once you have have heard this the story, this narrative of becoming with intention towards love and uh, reconciliation, then from there you can ask the how question because it's a legitimate question to ask in that light. I think the the problem is maybe what he's getting at is if you start with well, how is this even possible before I'm even gonna ask the who question or be interested in the salvation question, much less my highly motivated reasoning and all of it. Uh, that I think makes a pretty substantial difference to what you'll find and what you'll be persuaded by as well. And I think, you know, since Bonhoeffer, there has been so much Christology that has taken his thoughts here as kind of a starting point. Um, here's another quotation from the lectures. We believe that Jesus is a human being who is God. 
and that he is so as the human being, not in spite of his humanity or beyond his humanity. It is Jesus Christ, the human being, who ignites faith. Jesus Christ is God. Notice, not in a divine nature, but rather God in our faith alone, who thus no longer in a way we can touch and describe. Now, there's so much truth in this that the divine Son of God is perfectly manifest in Christian faith in the humiliated Jesus Christ, so that we would not speak of his being God as all-powerful or all-knowing. We would speak of his birth in a manger and of his cross. And so, you know, yes, I think that, that that's, that's really on target. But it, the wonder of his birth in a manger and of his cross would be eviscerated if it were not the wonder of the one uh, who, um, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be coveted, as I like to translate it, but emptied himself. You know, Dad, we always uh, are frustrated at how how deep still our uh, Greek philosophical notions of God as, you know, timeless and untouchable and unaffected and all that um, continue to reign over our thoughts now. But it strikes me as you say that, that maybe it's just as well, because that's exactly what makes it such phenomenal, moving, wondrous good news to find out that God is not actually like that, <laughs> that God, in fact, is a God who is affected and moves outside of himself and sends his son and pours out his spirits. Um, uh, if you have that backdrop of false, faulty assumption about God, the gospel can actually break through to you. Whereas I think one of the things you, you're, you're tracing out here in Bonhoeffer is if you assert from the get-go the divine nature is like this, then there is no agenito, there is no becoming, there is no surprise, there is no good news. Uh, it's just is the way it is. And so adjust your expectations and get with the program. Yeah, no, here, here's another quotation that reveals the same I think, felicitous inconsistency on Bonhoeffer's part. <laughs> Should we all be so felicitous in our inconsistencies? <laughs> right. He writes, uh, How is Jesus's particular way of existing as the humiliated one expressed? In that he has taken on sinful flesh. Taken on sinful flesh? The conditions for his humiliation are set by the curse, the fall of Adam. And being humiliated, Christ, the God-human, enters of his own free will into the world of sin and death. You know, so what is presupposed, what makes this humiliation a saving wonder, is that it was not necessary, that it was an act of freedom, that it was an act of self-emptying, as according to Philippians 2 and so forth. He rings the changes here on Luther. He comes incognito as a beggar among beggars, an outcast among outcasts. He comes among sinners as the, as the one without, sinner, without sin, but also as a sinner among sinners. This is the central problem for all Christology. I agree, Dietrich. This is the central <laughs> problem, right? But you can't eviscerate the tension here, the paradox that God in glory becomes God in humility. Yeah, 
And actually, he does talk very, very beautifully about um, even distinguishing the humanity of God from the humiliation of God in Christ and the importance of that dialectic of humiliation and exaltation. For all of you Christology nerds out there, you're going to get a lot of really awesome Greek and Latin invented theological terms for parsing out every last little bit of that. We are not going to get into that today. And in fact, um, Dad, I see that we are at uh, an hour and 10 minutes right now. <laughs> It seems like we're having a harder and harder time keeping our conversations within an hour these days. Um, actually, for all that we have discussed, we have not covered a great deal of the material in these 60 pages of lectures. He actually, Bonhoeffer does go through the early history of the Christological disputes and the conciliar decisions. So um, if you want a refresher course, you can go back and, and look at that. But I think, Dad, the place to end here then, having having critically appreciated what Bonhoeffer has to say Christo Christologically, he brings it back to um, the being of the church because the church, one of one of the things the church is, is is the being of Christ in the world. And therefore, if if Christ is this way that we have depicted and understood, then the church must also be that way. So I think that would be a good place to end. Yes, he writes, the church cannot seek any visible authentic authentication of its nature so long as Christ has renounced doing so for himself. Now, just in today's climate, where so many churches of Christians in the United States of America are seeking a political patron and seeking to look good and be vindicated by being on the right side of history, whatever that may be, you know, they're seeking visible authentication of their nature as the Church of Christ when in fact Christ himself has renounced doing so for his own self. But note his immediate correction to where the sinful churchly mind is going to take this, because he goes on to say, nor may the church, as a humiliated church, look upon itself with vain self-satisfaction, as though being humiliated were the visible proof <laughs> that Christ is with it. Right. We know and that we church, can... don't we, Dad? <laughs> we sure do. Um, the rationalization of the self-inflicted wounds that mainline American Protestant denominations have inflicted upon themselves. And then while well, the church is um, broken, bleeding, and dying, they say, well, look at us. We're just like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my uh, in my my novel, A Tumbling Down, I have a part where Donald the pastor is recalling his his uh, introduction to Lutheranism by going to a Lutheran seminary and how how all of his uh, fellow seminarians talked with smug wonder at the many crosses that they got to bear. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know that that was definitely uh, uh, me speaking through my character there but there is something very disgustingly vain about being so pleased with the cross that you get to carry it's, it's a form of masochism isn't it theological you know one of the reasons luther himself abandoned the rhetoric of the theology of the cross was that he feared it would become a new form of Christ mysticism, a new theology of pain that feels so good or something like that. Bonhoeffer puts it just beautifully. The humiliation of Christ is not a principle for the church to follow, but rather a fact. For the church can be high and it can be lowly, if only both conditions occur for the sake of Christ. 
It is not good for the church to hasten to proclaim its lowliness, but it is not good either for the church to hasten to proclaim its greatness and power. It is only good for the church to seek forgiveness for its sins. Bam! Amen. Yep. That's not just an amen. That's a bam. (laughs) I have a student right now who's really perplexed by the behavior of the church under the Third Reich and trying to figure out how to how to how to um, how to do a true apologetics about the church and its failures under the Third Reich, and I said to this to students like this, look, the true apologetic of the Christian church is that it is the place where sins are confessed and absolution is pronounced. That is the only um, defense of the church. And anything, any other kind of defense of the church is only human propaganda. Lord, have mercy on us all. I think that's the place to stop. Yeah, that's, that's very good. What are we doing next time? Next time on the show, we're going to talk about Paul Tillich. Oh, joy. <laughs> Whose idea was that? <laughs> I know whose idea it wasn't. <laughs> listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.